What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Danielle Moore is a forensic psychologist, victim advocate, and former competitive gymnast. Despite the fact that her tumultuous journey has included extensive abuse and both physical and emotional pain, Dr. Danny is a true beacon of hope for survivors. No matter what came next for her, she has managed to channel her energies into true advocacy and to make change in athletic systems all around. My name is Danielle Moore. My mom would probably describe me as courageous, strong, intelligent, kind. My husband said driven, compassionate, thankful, and having grit. I just got married. I was a gymnast for about 14 years. I was always flexible. I just had like a natural niche for it. As a kid, I remember literally climbing walls. So I think it channeled that energy. That feeling of flying is amazing because it's coming from your own body's strength. You don't necessarily get that from other sports. Then I tried out for a junior team, which kind of fast tracks you through the different levels of gymnastics. And that was fun until it was not because of the coach and just the dynamics, the pressure, the negativity, the abuse. My mom could see it because I was always so nervous before practice, but I had that drive or it was drilled into me that I had to go to practice. I had to be perfect. And then I got hurt. So that was a natural exit from competitive gymnastics. When I say got hurt, my left leg went completely numb and found out later that a disc slipped and was pressing on the nerve. In a 10-year-old, that's not normal you can see what your body goes through when you're pushed in certain ways and you're not listening to your body. After I was done with the competitive gymnastics and healed up a bit, I did gymnastics at other clubs that were more fun, that didn't have that competitive nature. Then when I got to high school, they had a gymnastics team. So I tried out for that. That was pretty fun. Of course, that injury flared up again. And from freshman to senior year of high school, that's when I saw Larry Nassar for my injuries. That's when the abuse started. When the season was going on, the abuse occurred two to three times a week because I was going two to three times a week to see him. That was his recommendation. My parents trusted in what I trusted in. He has that natural authority as a doctor and the status of being now the former Olympic gymnast doctor. The sexual abuse happened from freshman to senior year. 
when I first started seeing NASAR, sometimes my dad or my mom would take me. I remember the first incident of sexual abuse. My dad was actually in the room, but NASAR's body was blocking what he was doing. That alone was incredibly confusing because this is a doctor you're supposed to trust. My dad's in the room. Is this an actual medical procedure? I remember trying to suck in my muscles and sink into the table so he couldn't touch me. During those four years, it did increase when I started to drive. I would take myself to the appointment two to three times a week is a lot. And I could go to and from practice to see him. I continued to see him because he was supposedly the best. He did things that made you feel special, made you feel comfortable coming back. They're all grooming techniques, but he would give gifts from the Olympics. He had official bag tags for the Olympics, pins from the Olympics, those little like trinket type things that I thought were absolutely amazing because I was such a fan of gymnastics. I remember he carried his phone on his belt. He would get calls and he would open his phone to see who it was. He would say, oh, it's coming from the Caroli Ranch. And the Caroli Ranch was where the best of the best gymnasts would go to work out and train, then go to the Olympics. He would see it. He would say it out loud. And I'm like, you can take it. Go ahead. It's important if they call. He would then close his phone and say, well, you're more important at this moment. So again, that's making you feel special. Him looking at me to that same level of gymnastics that I looked up to. I then, as an adult question, if he actually got those calls, because he would get them very frequently. So I'm guessing he didn't. Also, he would pay special attention going above and beyond. I had a back brace for quite a while and it was pinching my ribs. So he walked me down to the physical therapy area, which was on a whole another level of the building. He told one of the physical therapists, they're the ones that had to shape the brace. They put it in really hot water and then put it on my back. But I remember Nassar paid special attention to rubbing in that area. I thought at the time, this is weird. The PT person can handle this. Why are you still down here? Also, my parents' insurance kind of tapped out based on the insurance code Nassar was using. I remember my mom receiving a call directly from Nassar that he would change the insurance code so I could keep coming to see him. Again, I thought, oh my gosh, it's really nice. So did my parents because we all thought he was helping. But I also had that thought, why is he calling? Why isn't the secretary calling? Or maybe my mom voiced that, but I remember that specifically. Like, why is he doing this? Again, I started seeing Nassar when I was a freshman. My back started to hurt. By my senior year, I was competing in a back brace, wrist brace, and my ankles taped. Looking back, I should have quit long before my senior year. Any other doctor probably would have said, you need to pick something else. You need to not do this or else it's going to hurt your body because I was already having a lot of symptoms. But because I was young, it kind of healed itself once I stopped gymnastics when I was a senior. But as I age, the same injury had come back, the same spot, the same disc. So in 2012, I had my first surgery. It helped a little. Then the rest of the surgeries have been from 2016 to 2022. 
and that was my lower back. I had six surgeries on. It's really hard to get strong and go to the gym when you're recovering from back-to-back-to-back surgeries. So it has been a very domino effect with my spine. My surgeon compared my back to somebody who was in a parachuting accident. He said a lot of gymnast backs are like that. And in gymnastics, you only see those who have made it to the higher levels. You don't see the thousands of gymnasts who have not gotten there because of injuries or didn't even want to get there and still were injured. It's a very brutal sport on your body. I'm in a constant level of pain. Sometimes I have good days. Sometimes I have really bad days. Luckily, the good outweigh the bad. Every time I have that pain, which again is every day, every day I think of Nassar and the abuse. What could have happened if I actually saw a doctor who was looking out for me and not his own pedophilic sexual gratification? I'm a doctor of clinical and forensic psychology. I am also a founding member of the Army of Survivors. I also teach at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in their criminology department. There's so many different things. It can go from child custody evaluations to addiction, to anything that comes up. There's not guilty by reason of insanity or fitness to stand trial. Anything that comes up that's mental health related that a judge sees or an attorney sees or questions, then they send them over to a forensic psychologist. I was drawn to the forensic side of psychology because it's just super interesting. I was always interested in the law. When you think of forensic psychology, it's anything where mental health and the law comes together. Honestly, my favorite job has been working in a jail, which sounds kind of weird, but you're seeing people almost at their worst. And again, that feels weird to say, but in that moment you can help them or at least ease some of their pain or worries. That was probably the most interesting job I had and liked. I also worked in a prison setting, which was incredibly interesting. In terms of the progression of my education, with internship, it's like when medical students are matched with hospitals, it's the same exact process. You don't really have a say where you go, you interview. And I ended up at a facility where they did tons of forensic work. They had people in the jail, which I was one of them. They also treated a ton of sex offenders. I don't think I've realized on a full conscious level that a huge part of forensic psychology is dealing with sexual offenders at different levels of the judicial process. So that internship gave me the experience with working with sexual offenders. Once that was over, you're typically supposed to do a postdoctorate. Because of my experience, I easily got a position with a prison in Illinois that housed individuals who had already served their prison sentence, but then the court deemed them too dangerous to be let out because of their serial sex offending and or murder. So they would go to this prison. It's very difficult to get out. You can participate in the treatment program and that's the way that gets you out. This practice is highly controversial. Only some states have it. It's looked at as double jeopardy. I can honestly see it from both sides. This is where I got my postdoc. I enjoyed working in the prison system, 
there was a lot of camaraderie between myself and other staff members, which was really nice. And I hadn't really had that in previous positions because you're so stressed from school. There's a lot of competition, things like that. And then at the end of the day, you leave that prison and then you don't have to necessarily think about it. When I'm in the prison, it was easier to watch my back in a sense. I came to that realization through therapy because I really questioned my choices to go into the field and to work with individuals who had sexual abuse backgrounds or pending charges. So it took a lot of time to get to that realization that maybe this was a defense mechanism. I did potentially have to go testify in court for a child custody case. But honestly, after the whole NASAR thing, I really stepped back from the forensic psychology or acting in that role. So that's why I turned to teaching. I'm also not licensed yet. I've been kind of putting it off. I've had some good reasons, surgeries and this whole case. You have to have the mental capacity to study and that just hasn't been there. I really did a good job of covering up and justifying the abuse throughout those 12 to 15 years. What unfolded is, honestly, I was driving home from work. I would call my mom on the way home just to check in, say hi. One day she said to me, Larry Nasser was arrested for child abuse. And as soon as those words came out of her mouth, I thought that doesn't surprise me. Then all my defense mechanisms came crashing down. I could literally picture the list of defense mechanisms like denial, repression, suppression, splitting, even humor, all of those just crumbling. I pulled my car over. I told my mom I was about to lose service because it was a rural area and I hung up with her. And then I started freaking out. I caught my breath. For some reason, this picture sticks out in my head. When I pulled over, there was a cow really close to the road. Obviously, there was a fence and I was just looking into the cow's eyes. I don't know, (laughs) maybe some connection in grounding or something, but it stands out so clearly still in my mind. But I went home, I started Googling, and I read Rachel Den Hollander's article that was first published in the Indie Star. While I was reading that, I thought I was reading my own story in terms of how the abuse unfolded. So again, freaked out. There was a number for an attorney that she had hired. I believe it was that same night that I called him and left a message. He quickly called me back. I told him the same thing happened to me. What are my options? Legally, how does this work? I know about the legal system, but I'm not an attorney. After that, I was just numb. A few days after I made that call with the attorney, he met with me in the little town where I lived. He actually flew there just to talk with me. I was thinking this is a huge case. This is going to be big. He talked with me, took my statement. I hired him as my attorney. He was the first person I told, a stranger. For me, that was a little bit easier because he doesn't know me. He can't judge me. And if he does, who cares? He's a stranger. It took me about two weeks to actually tell my mom that I was sexually abused by Nassar. She was heartbroken, but she was so strong because she had to be for me. And I'm incredibly lucky to have her. And as I talk about this, I start tearing up because she was just my rock support through all of this. And I wouldn't have gotten through the really tough times without that support. Even though she was hurting, she was my strength. 
So that's how things unfolded within the first two weeks. I then made the police report. A few days later, I was at work. I'm obviously incredibly stressed out trying to hide what was going on. That stress manifested within my physical body because I was doing such a bad job of letting it out. I stood up to go into a therapy group and my heart started racing. I was like, what is going on? Luckily, I had my Apple Watch on and checked my pulse. It was over 200 and I was sitting. So I called my supervisor. He called one of the nursing staff. They're like, we need to get you to the hospital. What was going on was called SVT. And that's supraventricular tachycardia. And it's the misfiring of the electrical circuit within the heart. I was rushed to the hospital. They were able to get me back to normal without drastic procedures. And then a few months later, because it kept happening, I had my first heart surgery. This is around the topic, jumping a few years later before I did my statement. My attorney called me and said, oh, we need some more paperwork from you. I was like, no problem. I'll get it to you as soon as possible. Hung up the phone, went into my files. And as soon as I opened that file, I went into SVT again. I couldn't get it to slow down. At that point, I had learned different maneuvers to get your heart rate to slow down. I called the ambulance myself. I made it downstairs in my apartment building. They took me into the hospital and they couldn't get it to slow down. This is another huge piece of trauma. They gave medication basically to stop my heart. They said it usually doesn't stop it. It goes down to under 10 beats per minute, which is obviously not good. So they pushed the medication and the amount of pain I felt in my chest, you can't even describe it. I mean, I've been through the back surgeries and the neck surgeries, but that pain was horrible. I'd rather have another surgery than go through that again. Unfortunately, the first round of medication didn't work. They had to do this three or four times total. So again, there's that pain. They're about to shock me. They had a crash cart there. The whole team was there, which is absolutely crazy to me, seeing all these nurses, all these doctors. And they were about to shock me, but I have a spinal cord stimulator to help with the pain in my back, which is an internal battery that sends electric signals down your nerves to help block pain signals. They didn't really want to shock me because then that would be ruined. So that's why they tried the medication so much. Luckily, they didn't have to because I'm imagining that really hurts. I ended up having another surgery because of it. So I had two heart surgeries between 2016 and 2018. Honestly, looking back, I'm like, how did I even survive that? Dealing with the heart stuff and the back pain surgeries within the time frame of the legal process, they were actually a distraction. And I don't say they're a good distraction because of what I went through, but they were a distraction from the emotional pain that I was trying not to feel. I was pushing it down, focusing on my physical health. Dealing with anything with your heart is critical. So that's where I put my energy. That time frame was such a blur. I was either like a walking zombie and really numb or I had palpable anxiety. But the thought process... I don't necessarily think was there. It was more of a gut feeling that I needed to face him and not be ignored. The victim impact statement started in January at Christmas before. I was living in Chicago. I refused to go home for Christmas because my anxiety was so high because I would be in the same area as everything that was going on. 
my friends and family were like, what are you doing to yourself? They were looking out for me by asking me these questions. The local news was covering it every night. Obviously, I didn't have to watch it, but it was there in your face. At that time, I was also trying to write this statement. There were multiple ways we could actually give the statement. We could write something and have somebody else read it. We could write something and have a victim advocate read it. You could record something and they would play it. Or you could just submit it to the judge and have it not read and just the judge is still going to read it. Or you could get up there and give the statement. I just had to face him. I just really wanted to tell him to fuck off. I obviously couldn't do that in court, even though I really wanted to. So I had to find a way to drop him down and kick him off the pedestal he was on and was put on by individuals and institutions. That's where my statement came from. That's why I thought I needed to get up and talk directly to him. I read my statement the morning of the first day. We hadn't even broken for lunch. The statement was two or three minutes long because I went through how it impacted me emotionally, professionally. So the last part of my victim impact statement goes as follows. Mr. Nassar, you are no longer called a doctor. You have been stripped of your medical license, and soon you'll be known by your prison number for what I hope to be the maximum sentence. I find this fitting as I was a thing, inhuman, or just a number to you. I will no longer be known as a number. I will be known as Dr. Daniel Moore. That was my way of saying a giant fuck you, which is what I wrote initially and then carved it into something that I could say in court that meant the same thing. I was honestly so focused with getting up there, getting this out without crying. And I want to make sure this is very clear. You're allowed to cry. Most people do. For some reason, I just wanted him to see some type of strength that honestly I didn't necessarily have at the time, but that I could have, especially with that title of being called a doctor. He can't do that anymore. So I was so focused on just getting up there and getting the statement out. My mom was sitting next to me in court. We had the opportunity to have somebody come up to the podium with them. A lot of people did for support. I thought if I saw my mom, I would start crying. I was like, come up there with me. Don't come up there with me. Come up there with me. So <laughs> I think my mom was very confused. And the last minute when my name was called to read my statement, I was like, no, I'm good. Stay here. So it was seconds before that I made the decision that I was going to go up there by myself and do this. It was empowering, but I didn't feel that in the moment because I was just so nervous. I did leave the courtroom at that time and my mom followed me. That's when I broke down and started crying. There was a room for survivors to go and hang out just to have some safety. I remember when I left the room, walking up the stairs back to the courtroom, I ran into Andrea Mumford, who is the detective. I remember this clearly. She's like, after your statement, I wanted to get up and be like, mic drop. And it just made me laugh. After I ran into Andrea Mumford, I started to feel that strength and was able to go back into the courtroom and support other survivors. I honestly didn't go back the next day because there was still a lot of anxiety. I was exhausted as well. So physically tired. 
that was because of medical conditions. But when you're that anxious for so long, your body just shuts down. I did go back a few other days. I had to run back to Chicago and work, but then I came back for a few days. And of course, for his actual sentencing, when I tried out for this junior team, that's a fast track through the levels. The head coach was John Geddard, who was later indicted on charges that included child trafficking. Before they made the arrest, they announced that he was going to be arrested. He had the time to kill himself. That alone was a huge shock, even though I was not really involved in his case. I made a statement, but I couldn't remember a lot. When I think back to gymnastics, he scared me. His yelling, his throwing things, no child should have to endure that. But was more heart-wrenching was those who are named in the indictment, those who would testify against him. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into a court case prior to an arrest or an indictment. My heart just throbbed for those individuals having to go through all of that. I can't imagine. They weren't able to give a statement. They were re-traumatized by the judicial system. It was just horrible. They didn't get justice. He stole the justice, like he stole a lot of innocence. I did see a different part of the judicial system because every state, every jurisdiction handles things differently. But across the board, it takes forever for some of these cases. And it's so hard on the victim. The idea is there's quick justice because that's what we see on TV. But these cases take years. It's just so taxing. I knew this was a big story. I was not expecting the national and international attention. There was so many shutter clicks that it was so overwhelming, especially when I came out of the courtroom and started crying. Like, leave me alone. I was not expecting that type of attention. I think in our case, a lot of the attention was on the survivors, which it should be. For other cases that you see in the media, the attention is on the perpetrator. Seeing us, the survivors, go up there and say our impact statement, I think was unprecedented. Judge Aquilina allowed as many people to speak as they wanted because it was our time to have our voice heard. And I think over 150 spoke. In our case, the media attention was switched more to the survivors. However, in the articles, of course, you see a picture of his face as well. People started to reach out, which was very nice, saying, thank you for talking. I'm here for you. Because a lot of people didn't know that I was part of this case. I thought it was incredibly nice. I think it takes a lot to reach out to somebody who you haven't talked to in a while and offer sympathy or your support. A lot of it came from individuals I went to high school with who I hadn't talked to in years. The friends and family reaching out, I thought was supportive. The media attention was twofold, I guess. It was great that it was bringing light to the institutional betrayal and the subject of sexual abuse because it's really not talked about too much. I mean, it is now more after the Me Too movement. So the media attention on that aspect, I thought was good. It was shocking to see my face and my quotes. Even though it's hard to see yourself in pain in the media, I think there's a component where other people are seeing it and maybe develop more understanding or empathy, a realization that this trauma goes on for years. 
or they're just a little bit more sensitive to it, or they're just able to talk about it and the conversations continue, that's when some type of change happens. What was incredibly harmful and sticks out more than anything were the comments on the articles. They were nasty, just completely nasty. I remember that from five years ago now. So those negative comments stuck out. I wish some of the comments would be deleted. There needs to be a moderator or just not have the ability to have those comments. Some articles you can't comment on, I've noticed. I don't want to blame the media for this, but there was a few individuals that did some pretty nasty things. There were Instagrams that were in support of Larry Nassar that put up horrible memes about us and reached out to us to bully individuals a few years afterwards. The media attention didn't just stop after the victim impact statements. It kept going because of the fallout of Michigan State University, USA Gymnastics, and the Olympic Committee. There were arrests made within that area, different investigations of how things were handled, different things like that. So it was pretty constant. But the media attention also brought light to the institutions that enabled him. There were reports of the abuse 20 some odd years earlier. The first report was in 1997 and there was multiple reports later on. To give a little bit of perspective, if somebody had listened during all of those times before I saw him in 99, 2000, I wouldn't have been sexually abused. After the victim impact statements, it took them a long time to make changes. They still need to make changes. And that goes for other institutions as well. So the media did, again, bring light to the institutions that enabled Nassar. And there was kind of this call to change, but we honestly didn't see the change. A few months later, after the victim impact statements, this woman, Grace, messaged a lot of us survivors and said, well, why don't we make the change ourselves? We started a nonprofit called the Army of Survivors. The Army of Survivors is the only national organization, and we are a 501c3 nonprofit to bring awareness, accountability, and transparency to sexual violence against athletes at all levels. So we're talking Little League or T-ball up to elite Olympic athletes. We are doing this through education, different resources, and advocacy. Some of the things that we have done and are working on is the Compassionate Coach program that we have. We developed a training program and it's supposed to launch in May-June timeframe to teach coaches to be good towards their athletes, to be trauma-informed, to make sure that if they see abuse in other aspects of sports, other areas of life, to report it. We developed a power and control wheel specific towards athletics, adapted from the Duluth Intervention Projects for Domestic Violence. We wanted to do that because within athletics, there are very specific aspects of sports where the individual might not feel comfortable telling. What came next in terms of your healing journey? After my statement, that's actually when all the emotions really started to hit me. Throughout this whole process, I was either distracted by medical issues, which I still was at that time, 
but I was more distracted by what came next in the judicial process. There was always something like a motion or an attorney meeting. There's always something that you're focusing on. After that statement was read, there was nothing necessarily to focus on. So for me, that's when the depression really kicked in. At that time, I had the tools to deal with it because I had been in residential treatment at the beginning of 2017, and I had been in therapy throughout that whole time. But that few months was really difficult. Then this is not what happens for everybody, and it was kind of crazy. But we then get organizations contacting us saying, we want to give you this Humanitarian Courage Award. We want to give you an ESPY. We want you to come to LA and get these awards. Then you're like, wow, these people are still listening. This is still a conversation we're having. These events are going to bring light to the issue once again and in a different way. So that was odd in a sense. Then there was the Glamour Magazine Women of the Year photo shoot. So there's always things going on that were distractions or that were positive that helped with the depression because I didn't feel as alone. Even though I had that community of survivors, you still feel isolated. I'm also grieving the life that I thought I would have. I honestly can't have a normal job that I go to because I have to take rest during the day. I have to lay down. Luckily, with my teaching job, as long as I get things done on a certain time, I'm fine. I can answer emails while I lay down. It's more conducive to my body. So there's a large part of me that is grieving the life I imagined I would have after graduating from grad school. That part is also tough. I've been coming to terms with it a little bit better than dealing with the pain and the triggering every single day. I needed a change. My back was hurting a lot, like it usually does, but my pain management doctor was like, you should think about moving to a warmer climate. I had planned a vacation to Hawaii with some friends and just fell in love with the islands. It was beautiful. I decided to apply for some jobs. I got a job at the prosecuting attorney's office as an advocate. I moved to Hawaii. I had some cousins here as well, so it wasn't like I was coming into a state thousands of miles away from everybody, completely alone. I've been here three years. It was a massive reset. It was a place very far away from the case and news stories. It was refreshing. Obviously, the sunlight does a lot for your mood. Even if you're not at the beach or in the areas that people go on vacation, just that warm weather. And then you have the rainbows. Those are always awesome to see. I never get sick of them and you see them almost every day. It has been very healing. The restart, not knowing anybody, developing a new life was great. Even though I was dealing with victims of sexual assault through my job at that point, I knew I could handle it, especially at a different level. I worked at the prosecuting attorney's office for about six months before my back again gave out. I had two surgeries within six months. They couldn't hold that position, so I resigned. Obviously, I wanted victims to be helped, so somebody needed to do that. There was other individuals in that department, but the caseloads that we had were absolutely crazy, 100 plus With my doctor, I had the discussion of, you just got to work from home. We got to find something. 
And I was already connected with the school that I teach at. So it was easy to transition into that position. At what point did you meet your partner? And at what point did you share about your journey? It was about a month after I moved here. I honestly didn't have to run into that because from the ESPYs, we were given a bracelet that says courage on it. And I was nervous when I met him. So I would play with the bracelet. He noticed the wording and asked where I got it. And I told them it was from the ESPYs. And then the background that I've already shared, you know, I'm from Michigan. I was a gymnast, like sports, these kind of things. He told me in a way that he knew that was, I can't remember the words, of course, but that was very sensitive, very short, leaving the door open for me to talk about it or not. Because of that approach, I did talk about it. So he knew second or third date, I think. Then as our relationship progressed, we were still dealing with USAG and we're still dealing with some stuff, but to be supportive through that was huge. When court stuff comes up, it's always triggering. Your emotional state, however you deal with it, is going to change. So he knew when I was dealing with that stuff and I would tell him, his response was, well, what can I do for you? That, again, leaves the door open for something he can do or nothing. Sometimes people just need time by themselves to cool off. They do want to talk about it or they do need somebody's help with something. And either way, just knowing someone is there, whether you want it or not, is immense. Your loved ones you leaned on, rightfully so. What other tools helped you get through the heaviest portions of this journey? My mom. Having that support. And for other people, it could be a friend, could be a Facebook group, somebody or something that you can vent to. That person was my mom. During that whole process, she was the one that held me up the whole time. She gave me the strength to keep going. If you have an individual like that, use them. Even if it's for like a distraction, go out and go shopping or go get coffee. Other tools, like I said, therapy. I was on medication. For me, exercise is a big stress relief, but I couldn't do that because of my heart and my back. I didn't necessarily have those tools as much. Going back to my mom or trying to distract myself with work or my dog. I didn't mention that. Dogs are a great companion, distraction. They get you outside. They're always happy. So I would suggest you get a pet if you can. If you have the ability to take care of it, of course. It's proven with veterans, emotional support dogs or service dogs. Even just a dog or a cat that doesn't have training can be so supportive. You feel that love and that's what you need. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself some grace. Don't compare your healing processes. Like right now, I'm able to talk about this, but this is healing for me. It's not healing for other people. So don't compare your journey of healing to somebody else's. You go through a lot of different emotions and stages of healing. Realizing that as well is helpful. But looking back on childhood trauma is very difficult because we're looking back from an adult lens. You have to remember that you were a child during that time. You didn't have the information that you have now as an adult. That's where giving yourself some grace comes in. We have defense mechanisms for a reason. Those defense mechanisms were utilized until you're ready to face the trauma. A lot of times that takes years. For me, it took maybe 12 years. 
but I wasn't necessarily maybe ready to face it, but it was there. Revisiting trauma as an adult, remember you were a child. You wouldn't judge a child on the playground or somebody else's child, your child, for not saying anything or saying something and not being believed. So don't judge yourself or try not to. You are amazing. You have so much to give this world from your strength and tenacity to your perspectives. I'm so grateful that you've done that for us. Where can people find you on social media or elsewhere if they want to follow your journey and learn more from what you have to give? First, because the Army of Survivors, the nonprofit, is such a passion project for me because I'm helping others. I would say follow the Army of Survivors on Instagram, Facebook. There's always tips or there's different things that we're doing. You'll see our journeys and blogs and all sorts of different things, different advocacy that we're doing different legislation that we're working on and just helping survivors. It's also a place where you know you're not alone. I have to also give credit to Grace French. She's the one who had the idea for the Army of Survivors. At that time, she was right out of undergrad and put this thing together and it has thrived. She amazes me every day. So smart, so helpful. So I have to give her credit for helping me as well letting me be a part of the Army of Survivors and channeling my want to help others. Personally, you could also follow me on Instagram and that's at dr. Period, Danny, D-A-N-I, 2016. I post a lot about the Army of Survivors because again, we're doing great things. We're trying our best so others don't have to go through what we did. That in itself is healing for me. Again, that's my journey. You're changing the world for the positive based on your trauma. I thank you for your hard work and everything that you're doing. I so appreciate you sharing this portion of your journey with us today. Thank you. And thank you for continuing to give survivors a platform for justice. It is healing when you're able to talk about your story. I really appreciate that. So thank you. Larry Nassar was first accused of sexually molesting his underage gymnast patients as early as 1994. In 1996, a parent raised concerns to John Geddert, who was the gymnastics coach Danielle referenced that would go on to lead the 2012 American Olympic gymnastics team. Geddert did not report the claim to the police, and no consequences were doled out. The accusations by both gymnasts and even a neighbor of Nassar's continued for years and even resulted in reports to his employer, Michigan State University, in 1998, 2000, and 2014. However, in 2014, Michigan State University cleared him on all charges of wrongdoing. Then, August 4, 2016, the Indianapolis Star published a thorough investigation into USA Gymnastics' mishandling of the many complaints. The article led to a cascading effect of police reports being filed. It wasn't until September 20, 2016, that MSU formally fired Nassar from his duties to the school. After several years, many charges, and a plea deal, Nassar was finally sentenced to 60 years in federal prison for child pornography charges on December 7, 2017. Then, on February 5, 2018, his sentence grew. 
he was given 40 to 125 additional years in prison on sexual assault charges. In total, 156 women and girls made impact statements at his sentencing proceedings. According to a USA Today article published in 2021, one in four current or former student-athletes report being sexually abused by an authority figure. The same study states that out of those abused, one in four of them actually report the assault. A large portion of those that don't report the abuse say they don't because they're afraid to jeopardize their positions in the sports which they participate. Organizations like the Army of Survivors and End Violence Against Women International help to bring awareness, education, and resources to those who are experiencing any type of abuse. Please visit the episode notes or www.somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for more information. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I have this weird ability to be in the darkest of situations and my mind just ticks and I go, where's the joke? It didn't happen quite so seamlessly after these things happened with my brother. It took about six months. I came home and I was a nervous wreck. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.